Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, how many times have you watched the new uh, Hard Knock season with the Jets? It's making me like Aaron Rodgers, and I don't like that feeling. It, it's been kind of strange, hasn't it? Yeah. Because I'd written the guy off as a kind of red-pilled uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, kind of a dickhead. You know, yeah, but you know, he, uh, I, he's kind of likable, and he can still throw the ball. We'll see if I still like him you know, week three of the yeah, season. Week eight. Yeah. Uh, also, Sauce Gardner. It's just a, yes. your cornerback, yeah. all pro. Now, the problem is we've had previous seasons where the Jets looked really good coming out of hard knocks. Yep. And, uh, and then let's just say the momentum kind of dissipated around week week three. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, we will uh, we'll try not to butt fumble on the show today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that was a hard knock season. That was, actually. Hard, that knock was hard knock season. That was a hard knock season. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about fears that Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled amidst a new funding request to Congress from the Biden administration, this horrifying report by Human Rights Watch about Saudi Arabia's treatment of Ethiopian migrants, some bad news for Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, good news about climate change, and then some scary climate change news out of Canada where they're dealing with these horrific, uh, massive wildfires. Get an election in Ecuador, the far right in Germany, and then a little more flavor from our friend Vivek Ramaswamy, the Republican <laughs> candidate from president, who's saying, you know, look, to his credit, he's saying different and interesting things about foreign policy. I I'll mean, it's a them, great for a weekly segment. It's yeah. great for content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, great. yeah. Uh, we'll start Vivek's about takes. Vivek's takes? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, space, dining and dashing, and more. And then I just spoke with President Biden's top Asia hand, Kurt Campbell. We talked about the uh, the historic summit at Camp David last weekend with, last Friday, I mean, with the presidents of South Korea and Japan. We also talked about China, China's economy, how China might view, you know, sort of the U.S. building up defensive alliances in the region. We talked about North Korea and the threat from its nuclear program. It was uh, a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, Kurt, Kurt is uh, definitely the, you know, at the center of things on Asia policy and just yeah. a huge personality, good guy. Can we call him a czar? He's a czar. He's the Asia czar. He's the Indo-Pacific coordinator, which I think whenever your wor- the word coordinator is in your title, that's That makes czar. you a bigger That's code deal. for czar. Yeah. That means yeah. that he's, this is not he's just your run-of-the-mill senior director here. He's this a BFD. Is, this is a czar. And also just like a very funny guy who can tell a great story. Real quick before we get to the news, do yourself a solid and join the Friends of the Pod community before tonight's Republican debate. You will be able to hop in the Discord with us. It's a big, fun, 
rowdy chat room where we all uh, laugh about what we're watching so we don't cry. You will also get bonus content, ad-free episodes of Pod Save America, and much, much more early access to tickets for upcoming live shows in Louisville, San Diego, and San Jose. So go to crooked.com slash friends to subscribe today. Crooked.com slash friends. Let's start with Ukraine, because you and I both noticed there's a bunch of reporting over the weekend or last couple of days that was very similar about how the Ukrainian offensive is struggling. We both kind of wondered, like, was there a briefing? Like, what, what's going on here? Why are these po- all popping at the same time? Here's a few examples. Uh, the Financial Times, quote, U.S. officials are increasingly critical of Ukraine's counteroffensive strategy and gloomy about its prospects of success. Wall Street Journal, Russia's war on Ukraine is in danger of becoming a protracted struggle that lasts several more years. The Washington Post, Ukraine appears to be running out of options in a counteroffensive that officials originally framed as Kiev's crucial operation to retake significant territory. Post again, U.S. intelligence community assesses that Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to reach the key southeastern city of Melitopol, uh, blah, blah, blah. You get the point. We're not trying to be downers here. And like, obviously, like the military situation can change quickly. We saw that last year in that offensive. Uh, but I do think the coverage in Washington is relevant, given that President Biden is asking for another $24 billion to arm Ukraine. That funding request is tucked into a broader funding package that includes uh, disaster relief, border security, uh, I think um, anti-drug stuff for fentanyl. So hopefully that makes the politics of voting against it harder. But Ben, I'm increasingly nervous about what Kevin McCarthy can or will be able to do when it comes to getting this passed. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think we should be that surprised that this has been a hard fight. You know, we've talked a lot about how the Russians are dug in, how this is a bit of a war of attrition. Uh, you know, frankly, you know, from the get-go, you would think that this might be a multi-year war, not something that wraps in two years. I think the headline coming out of those uh, stories, though, to me is, a sense that the U.S. is in a different place from the Ukrainians. And so the subtext of the stories was not just that the Ukrainians are having trouble. It's that there's some disagreement on tactics and strategy between the Ukrainians and and the Americans. They really kind of boiled down to a couple things. One thing that's been reported a lot in the last few weeks is that the Ukrainians tried out the kind of new you know, U.S. and NATO trained approach to combined arms. And that's like, you know, trying to merge capabilities, you know, the Ukrainians would like more air capabilities, but tanks and some of the uh, long range artillery and infantry capabilities. Uh, and, and instead, they've kind of, after suffering a lot of losses doing that um, and not making a lot of territorial gains, they've kind of reverted back to like a grinded out artillery struggle. Yep. And that the U.S. would kind of like to see them make better use of all the weapons we're providing through these different tactics. Put that aside because that's like, you know, the you know, military experts can nerd out on that. The, the more fundamental thing that I saw in some of this reporting was the U.S. really wanting them to focus on just breaking this land bridge. The idea is that the the Ukrainians are spread too wide. They're mm-hmm. fighting on too many fronts. Too frankly, many guys in Bakhmut. Yeah, this kind of comes out of the Bakhmut criticism. Why are you fighting the Donbass in eastern Ukraine? You really have to focus on the south because if you can kind of break the connection between Crimea and eastern Ukraine, the parts that Russia controls, that's what the U.S. really wants to keep Ukraine as a viable state. And the Ukrainians want to take back all their territory. Yeah. And to me, this is really important because I don't think that the Biden administration believes that they wouldn't say this, but that it's feasible in the near term that they're going to take back Crimea, they're going to take back every inch of eastern Ukraine. No. And so they would want Ukraine to throw everything at just kind of that breaking that land bridge. That's a fundamental disconnect. And I think if you see the bad headlines, 
Yes, that could lead to fatigue in Congress. That could be a rationale for people, and you already hear on the right, people saying, you know, why are we pouring weapons into this counteroffensive that's not making progress? But also it could create tensions between Washington and Kyiv, where if you see more grumbling like this from American officials, well, the Ukrainians are going to come out and say, we're the ones dying by the tens of thousands. Yeah. Stop telling us what to do. Right. You know, and this kind of relationship that has worked pretty well thus, thus far could get a little scratchy, and, and that would obviously be very counterproductive. And to that end, Ben, I saw Jake Sullivan uh, came out and briefed uh, reporters today by National Security Advisor. He said, we do not assess the conflict is a stalemate, which, you know, sort of counter to a lot of the reporting we've read. I guess maybe they mean Ukraine is making incremental progress. In slightly more positive news, the Washington Post reported that U.S. clustered munitions are proving highly effective in stopping Russian counterattacks though they aren't necessarily helping the Ukrainians break through Russian lines. And yes, I'm very aware, listeners, uh, of how depressing yeah. and gross it is to consider anything to do with cluster munitions to be positive. But like, this is a war and it's awful. Denmark and the Netherlands have agreed to provide Ukraine with F-16s, but that's obviously a ways off. As we discussed before, the U.S. and South Africa have been butting heads over the war for many months, especially after there's reports that South Africa was selling weapons to the Russians. This week, South Africa will host the annual BRICS summit, which brings together leaders from Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. There's a lot of concern in Washington, I think, that uh, Putin himself was going to fly to South Africa, attend this summit in person. But it turns out now he is going to zoom in uh, and avoid an ICC arrest warrant and, I guess, you know, not give the world the middle finger like an in-person visit would have done. The South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, reiterated that South Africa is not taking sides in the war. So it does seem like it's some good diplomatic work to get us back on sides a little bit with South Africa there. Uh, and then, Ben, you know, this isn't good news, but everyone's favorite insurrectionist warlord, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is in the Sahel region. Uh, he released a video saying he's going to make Russia great again. So, uh, great. Well, first of all, one other thing on the counteroffensive that occurs to me is that, uh, and your point about the counteroffensive from the Russians uh, brought this to mind, expectations were way too high for this counteroffensive at the beginning, right? And we were trying to throw cold water on this idea that they're going to like rout the Russians and right. there was so much hype around this. And they may have, you know, inadvertently set expectations too high by talking about victory. They actually may be intentionally lowering expectations now. I think maybe the reason it's the like U.S. like the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the reason the U.S. and the Ukrainians might be backgrounding, oh, this counteroffensive isn't going well, so that when they do make some gains, but not, you know, enormous gains, it looks like a success. So that's one thing. On the BRICS summit, you know, it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's pretty disappointing that, you know, almost two years into this full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that this entity, the BRICS that Russia's at the center of, that's meant to be this kind of alternative world order to the U.S. institutions like the G7 and others, um, that it's, you know, it's still a hot ticket, you know, like in addition to the BRICS countries, other countries are being invited mm -hmm. and it's kind of meant to be this kind of parallel alternative world order. And, and so the fact that that is happening with Russian participation kind of indicates the degree to which it's just the kind of West that's seen the Ukraine war as this seismic shift in geopolitics. It's kind of business as usual for the BRICS countries and, and a lot of the others. And by the way, that includes like an in India that was just given the red carpet treatment at the U.S. Uh, state visit. Mm -hmm. 
At the same time, the fact that, that Bruno to zoom in is an indication that something has changed. It does it, diminish it, him. Yeah, it, for it sure. diminishes him. Yeah. It makes him look, it reminds everybody. We've all zoomed into the group meeting. You feel like an asshole. You're up on screen, you're talking over people, you never know who's in there, really. We've zoomed in, but we've never zoomed in because the ICC had an arrest warrant out. <laughs> so, as far as you so know. Every, yeah, so, well, yeah. So every time that uh, people see Putin zooming in, it's kind of a reminder yeah. that, okay, we, this guy is like a persona non grata in the international parts of the international community. So that's positive. The Pogosian thing, though, does indicate that the Russian kind of bet uh, on parts of Africa is still there. And we've been speculating that one of the reasons why Pogosian's still alive is that he's the only guy who knows where the networks are in Africa, where the money trail is in Africa, who they're paying off. Yeah. And I think this video kind of confirms that. That like, totally. this guy is not in Belarus at some military camp just hanging out. This guy's back doing what he was unfortunately good at and indispensable to Putin at, which is kind of running coups and mercenaries and all manner of natural resource grabs in Africa. And I think that is problematic. Uh, you know, it, it, the Wagner Group, a little bit of military expertise and hardware uh, and willingness to use utter brute force can be very useful to a coup government in a place like Niger, as it was in Burkina Faso or Mali, um, but not good enough to, to fight you know, jihadist networks that uh, have made gains when Wagner replaces uh, the U.S. or French. So something to watch here. Is this just PR from Pergosian or is this the, the start of another push by Wagner to take advantage of what's happened in Niger? I imagine, unfortunately, it's the latter. Yeah, I think it's the latter too. Yeah. And probably not, uh, not hopeful news for those who want the coup resolved quickly uh, or at all. I guess his coup didn't work in Russia, but you know, they could work more easily yeah, in you know, Niger. Yeah. Hope springs yeah. eternal yeah. When, you're, <laughs> when you're an insurrectionist. Uh, let's switch gears to Saudi Arabia, Ben, because there was a horrible report uh, released by Human Rights Watch on Monday, which says that Saudi security forces have murdered hundreds, maybe thousands of Ethiopian migrants attempting to enter Saudi Arabia from Yemen. This report says that Saudi border guards have been shooting migrants at close range, firing rocket launchers and mortars at groups of like hundreds of innocent people. It appears to be a policy of deliberately targeting migrants and asylum seekers with lethal force. Oftentimes, these groups are mostly made up of women and children. The report covers the period from March 2022 through June 2023. Human Rights Watch says the killings are still happening as we speak. Migrants who survive these attacks are often taken to detention centers where they are tortured. One survivor interviewed said that male migrants in this group were forced to rape teenage girls they were traveling with by these Saudi security forces, just like absolute uh, sadists. One man who refused was murdered. An estimated 750,000 Ethiopians live and work in Saudi Arabia, but in recent years, many more have fled Ethiopia to escape the civil war or just sort of general economic challenges. The people who attempt this journey, they have to cross the Gulf of Aden. They're paying smugglers, they're paying human traffickers, and they're being abused by both the Saudi government and by the Houthi rebel groups uh, in Yemen. Human Rights Watch gathered a ton of evidence for this report. They interviewed dozens of migrants or their relatives and friends, analyzed hundreds of photos and videos. They found satellite images of mass graves. So Ben, I mean, a couple thoughts. I hope the US and every other country denounces this uh, and pressures the Saudis to change this policy immediately. The UN should do some sort of investigation. I believe uh, Human Rights Watch recommended that. And then finally, like I don't think anyone should need another reminder of who Mohammed bin Salman is, but this is another reminder of who Mohammed bin Salman is and why the US should probably not be cutting some diplomatic deal with the Saudis where we give them a security guarantee that's NATO-like or a nuclear program. It just doesn't seem like the best timing or the best idea to me. 
yeah. call me crazy. I think you put your finger on the most important thing, which is like, this is who the Saudi government is. This is who Mohammed bin Salman is. This wouldn't be happening. This isn't just a few excessive uses of force. This is clearly a systematic use of totally extrajudicial killing and torture and brutality. By the way, and, and at times to deal with migrants that uh, like are a result of the Saudi war in Yemen, which mm -hmm. caused its own uh, humanitarian crisis. It, you know, what MBS is good at doing is we've talked about the sports washing. He's buying golf. He wants you to look at the the line city, the weird thing He'll he's never building. Get built, so yeah, the Neom or whatever. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, the kind of high, New York City high line, except it goes on forever in Saudi Arabia. Or, you know, he'll make some change, like women can go to the movies or something. And everybody's like, oh, look at this guy. Right. He's changing Saudi society. He's a modernizer. Well, no, like he, he massacres people like this. One of the problems, ironically, tragically, of the Jamal Khashoggi crime is that it was so horrific to just remember this Washington Post journalist, but that kind of became, you know, like the one thing that everybody talked about. Like, how can we be, you know, buddies with this guy, MBS, who, you know, massacred Jamal Khashoggi? Well, he's also a guy that continues to systematically arrest uh, and mistreat and intimidate any political opposition. They continue to not be anywhere near where they should be on basic things like women's rights. Um, they continue to engage in wars in places like Yemen that have caused you know mass humanitarian crises. They continue to back warlords across the Middle East and North Africa or military uh, governance in places like Egypt that has been a disaster or the guys in Sudan that, you know, they were kind of playing both sides or now fighting civil war. Like the, the, the Khashoggi is the tip of an iceberg in terms of this guy's human rights records and all the sports washing and all the money and all the diplomatic dance around the Abraham Accords is meant to avert your gaze from this stuff. Absolutely. And so thank you to Human Rights Watch for documenting it. Tragically, usually it's worse than what they can uncover because if, you know. Oh, exponentially. What they, yeah. Hundreds is what they can prove. They, what they can prove. So imagine if that, that's what a human rights organization working that, that's not like literally on the ground in these prisons can see. Uh, imagine what the, the broader reality is. So to me, like we, we constantly have to be vigilant to not allow the kind of reputation laundering, whether it's diplomatic or sports or whatever else it is, um, to avert our gaze from like the true nature of what kind of leader MBS is. And at a certain point, to your point about this, the you know normalization deal, is this somebody that we want to be in business with per permanently, saying that they're basically have the status of a NATO ally like that? I don't know. This should make people deeply uncomfortable. I also would love to know if any U.S. assistance is going to these units conducting these massacres, because that should trigger Leahy law provisions that would have to stop any support or cooperation. Right. That's a really good point, and 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 also. Part of the normalization talks are apparently mass amounts of, of increased arms sales, too. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. So I, I, at a minimum, I hope that, that we're raising this diplomatically yeah. in addition to public. And Congresses, too. Yeah. Staying in Saudi Arabia. So the foreign minister of Iran apparently traveled to Saudi Arabia last week for talks, including with MBS, the crown prince. After the meeting, Iranian state news reported that MBS had agreed to reciprocate the visit and will go to Tehran sometime in the future. It's a big deal because in 2016, Iran and Saudi Arabia broke off diplomatic relations. They agreed to restore them in March of this year in this sort of China-backed rapprochement. So, Ben, it's one of those weird stories where, like, obviously it would be great if Saudi Arabia and Iran could get along and not wage sort of constant proxy and covert wars against each other. But it also, again, I mean, makes it seem like a security guarantee for Saudi Arabia, which was mostly about 
deterring attacks from Iran might be even less necessary than people are leading us to believe. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at MBS's behavior, it's like he's trying to close all the accounts, you know, like, uh, um, you know, the normalization deal, get all this stuff from the U.S., like patch it up. Or, I mean, I think he already gets along pretty well with Israel under the table, but like normalize there, maybe diffuse uh, things in Iran. But what it is, is it's kind of an axis of, of total autocracy, right? So um, the Iranians want a lifeline at a time when they're facing a protest movement. Maybe MBS wants this off his plate because he wants to be in a bigger weight class and fighting proxy wars with Iran. The Israelis obviously, under Netanyahu and this kind of far-right government, stand to benefit. It feels like this is an effort to kind of close all the accounts and lock in the autocratic order in the region. And look, I, I, I'm glad they're talking. I'm glad that there's this, I'd rather the Saudis and Iranians are engaged in diplomacy. I would just hope that there's some space to even at least incrementally press on these values issues from the United States uh, standpoint. They still need us a lot. And, and, and look, I think that this could probably also be a part of you know, the U.S. and the and the West doing another nuclear deal and the Saudis are more open to that because they have this line in with the Iranians. So there's, there's good aspects to this from like a state to state diplomatic uh, standpoint. The, the question is, what does it mean for the people in the region, whether you're like Iranian women or Saudi, uh, anybody who doesn't like MBS in Saudi Arabia or one of these migrants? And and there, I think we just have to continue to try to press these issues. Yeah. The person who's really benefiting the most from the Saudi relationship is Donald Trump. Yeah. Because they continue to host live golf tournament events at his courses. Uh, not to mention our friend Jared Kushner, who's and Jared. You know, sitting on a couple billion dollars. Apparently not having a, much of a luck investing it. Yeah. and But did reports. you see in something like 98% of his capital raised is outside the United States. Of course. And, yeah. Shocker. Yeah. Kickback. Speaking of Trump and his properties, there's a fun little twist in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. As I'm sure everyone remembers, Trump decided to take hundreds of classified documents with him from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and then store them by his toilet. Uh, the U.S. government shockingly didn't like that much. Trump now faces 40 separate criminal counts of stealing the documents and obstructing justice to get them back. Trump has uh, you know, floated all these different reasons for what happened, uh, including that he declassified all the documents before he left the White House. But according to a report from ABC News, that defense uh, took a big hit when former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told prosecutors that he doesn't recall Trump ordering or even discussing declassifying broad sets of classified materials before leaving the White House, nor was there any standing declassification order. ABC News also reviewed an unpublished draft prologue from Meadows's book that came out last year that includes a description of Trump having a classified war plan sitting on his couch during a meeting attended by Meadows' ghostwriter and his publicist. Imagine being so fucking insecure as the former president that you just pretend you like left the Iran war plan on the couch. Like this isn't a novel you were reading and put down to like answer the phone. It's like you're clearly placing that to try to impress these people. First of all, it's amazing. This is, you know, there've been so many other indictments that we forget. This is such an open and shut case. Truly. Um, every couple of weeks, like some other piece of information comes out that's like, not only did you do these crimes, here's like nine more independent corroborations of the exact thing. Here's some like, texting Ivanka. Yeah, hey, I did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, here's the, the Iranian war plan, like, you know, uh, uh, like being passed around a Mar-a-Lago yeah, wedding on or his something. Christmas you know? card, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so you would like, you know, if we had like the right judge on this one, maybe this is the one that could move fastest. Tough, I, I also like the Mark Meadows piece of this is really telling because, first of all, just to take it substantively, if you wanted to declassify, 
you would have to tell somebody that. Now, Trump has given this crazy Sean Hannity interview where he said he could like think something is mm-hmm. declassified. In that. No, there's a process. He's the mentalist, yeah. And the process would be you'd have to tell the chief of staff or the national security advisor or the director of national intelligence, hey, I'd like to declassify these documents because then they run a process to do that. And that that clearly didn't happen here, you know, and 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 that matters for the prosecution that that, that that he has no basis to make this argument whatsoever, you know, and even Meadows seemed to understand this. I continue to be interested in like who the audience is for these Mark Meadows books, you know, uh, like because he has his own book, which I I didn't even realize it come out because it kind of came and went. I do love Mark Meadows is kind of like the bumbling Forrest Gump of the Trump orbit, who's just like bumbles his way into criminal activity and, and getting his boss in trouble left and right. The, the, like the turning thing, over his texts and then being like, oh, I didn't want to do that. Can I have them back? And the prosecutor's like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah, the, so this book is called The Chief's Chief, um, which I, what? I, 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 I'm I just going to own up to the fact that I haven't read it. But I don't even know what that means, you know. Um, yeah. A, 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 but like the, 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 these guys like Meadows and Pompeo and uh, Mick, Mick Mulvaney, you know, like, these guys were like the complete lunatic fringe when they were elected to Congress and like, you know, the Tea Party election, trying to present themselves as these more reasonable guys. But like Meadows at every turn made all the wrong decisions. At best, he did nothing. At worst, he was enabling all of this behavior. Like if you were the former chief of staff, like a Dennis McDonough, right? Our former boss, chief of staff, very strictler uh, to the rules, right? Mm-hmm. If <laughs> Dennis McDonough came to my house... And uh, after we left government and saw like the classified Iran war plan there. He might kill you. I don't think he would just like observe it. No. And then be like, oh, maybe that's a good anecdote to drop in my prologue of like, my book. Uh, hey, Buster, uh, we're going to yeah. burn that. Yeah. It just it goes to show like all these people were just so casual about national security and about criminality, you know, that that that, that his thought process on seeing the classified Iran war plan isn't like, hey, maybe we should shred that that thing or, or better off return it. It's like, oh, this this could be uh, maybe sell a few books by dropping in the prologue. Yeah, I didn't mean to imply that Dennis would obstruct justice. I meant to imply that he would uh, dispose of it yeah. in the proper way. And dispose of us, you know. <laughs> <And> dispose <laughs> yeah, of us yeah, in the yeah. proper way. Uh, Dennis, the nicest guy in the world who, who emailed us both yesterday to make sure we were okay. <laughs> Los Angeles su- had a hurricane. Survived the hurricane, which was, you know, it was 24 hours of rain, but we, we did yeah, it. Speaking of LA hurricanes, let's talk about climate change, Ben. Ah, good. Two pieces of good news for people who are worried about climate change. First, Ecuadorians overwhelmingly voted to ban oil drilling in a national park situated in the Amazon rainforest. So the vote was 59% said no oil drilling, 41% said yes, so pretty overwhelming. Uh, The Asuni National Park spans about 2.5 million acres, and it's one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, so good to preserve that. Also, data released last month shows that deforestation in Brazil's Amazon fell 34% in the first half of 2023, thanks to Brazilian President Lula da Silva's environmental policies. So will either of those stories solve the problem? Of course not. Far from it. But it does show how important political decisions and political leadership can be, especially everybody who worked hard to get fucking Jair Bolsonaro tossed out in Brazil. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Latin America is going to be absolutely fundamental to preventing the kind of deforestation that could make any any effort to mitigate climate change impossible, you know, Southeast Asia, Latin America. And these are countries where, like you said, it's not like the negotiation that happens at the COP that is doing this. It is the politics in these countries that matter. And so like the people that care about climate change have to care about politics everywhere. Yes. Like significantly in the United States too. Yeah. 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 Like if you care about climate and, and you're like some big philanthropist, well, maybe you should be thinking about political outcomes as much as, you know, financing, you know, some, you know, well-meaning NGO. I mean, 
we need to do that too. Don't yeah, get do me both. wrong. Do, do both, both is, is the point. And I think what's also important here is that you know you hear a lot from Brazilians. They don't want to be told what to do with the Amazon. It's like a precious resource to them. So there has to be kind of a partnership in in trying to help them find solutions rather than coming in and being like, here's what you do. And this is a indication that they understand what the, the the value of those resources are. And with the right political leadership, it makes a huge difference. And you got to make it make economic sense, right? You got to tell Ecuador, look, ecotourism is going to benefit you much more in the long run than clear cutting this place and drilling. You yeah. Know? And that's, that could be a tough sell, but I think it worked here. And it does also show like the connection between uh, politics on democracy and climate, which we've talked about a bit, which is that, you know, Bolsonaro is like an autocratic, self-interested nationalist. He's opened it up to all the loggers and people probably like, you know, corrupt, making corrupt deals to get yep. in the Amazon. Like, so, you know, having more small D democratic leaders winning in places is also good for the the earth. Yeah. Huge deal. Uh, okay. Here's some bad news for climate change. So Canada has been dealing with massive unprecedented fires uh, this year, wildfires. It started with this dry and abnormally warm spring. That meant the fires started earlier and they've spread ever since. The Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center says 1,037 fires were burning as of Monday, and well over half of them were considered out of control. Uh, smoke from fires in British Columbia and also Washington and, and Oregon have blanketed the Pacific Northwest with smoke. Tens of thousands of people in Canada are under evacuation alerts or evacuation orders because fires have gotten so close to population centers. British Columbia is under a state of emergency. Prime Minister Trudeau said he's going to deploy the military to help people get out of there. Trudeau is also hammering uh, Facebook. Do you see this? Yeah. For blocking, sorry, meta. Uh, for blocking news X, content. Meta, yeah, 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 I'm not using yeah, your yeah, dumb yeah, terms. Yeah. Facebook. Twitter and Facebook, guys. For blocking uh, news content in Canada. So earlier this summer, Facebook started blocking news content from Canada on its platforms because Canada passed a law requiring technology companies to pay publishers when they link to or repurpose their content. Seems reasonable. Trudeau said, quote, Right now, in an emergency situation where up-to-date local information is more important than ever, Facebook is putting corporate profits ahead of people's safety. Uh, we should note that Google also said they're going to remove Canadian news links in response to this law, but they haven't done it yet. So, Ben, familiar story here, uh, climate change leading to severe weather, horrible fires, and also uh, tech companies being assholes. Well, and this is a good example, too, of like, you know, some of these tech companies, you know, make donations to environmental causes. But then when their profit margin is impacted at all, it's not like Google or uh, or Meta, whatever you want to call it, are, are going to have some huge hit because of this Canadian law. Like, no, come on. They're trying to draw a line in the sand yeah, for others. Yeah. Do the right thing. The one thing I will say is this cries out for kind of a regional effort because do you remember the North American Leaders Summit? Oh, how could uh, I forget? NALS, yeah, uh, of course. an acronym that nobody is aware of, which is essentially the leaders of the US, Canada, and Mexico would meet once a year and you'd work on issues. It does feel to me like when you do have a good relationship like the U.S. and Canada do, we should be looking at like a North American climate, you know, policy that would include a significant amount of U.S. resources being available to deal with things like Canadian wildfires. Yeah. We just have a lot more capacity. We have a huge defense budget, obviously, some of which could be relevant here. So one thing that I think the U.S. and Canada can do is try to kind of harmonize an approach to wildfires. Look, I was in New York this summer and I was having trouble breathing because of Canadian wildfires. It's horrible. So there's a U.S. Really interest in, in spending some resources on a North American approach to mitigate wildfires. Absolutely. That's the kind of future we're going into with this extreme weather. There's going to have to be cross-border cooperation, not just on emissions reduction, but on all this kind of climate mitigation. Totally agree with that. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Let's turn to Ecuador because people in Ecuador went to the polls over the weekend to vote in presidential and legislative elections. Last week, we talked about the shocking assassination of a candidate named Fernando Villavicencio as he was exiting a campaign event. Uh, Luisa Gonzalez, the candidate from the Democratic Socialist Party, got the most votes with 33% in the elections. She is seen as a protege of former president Rafael Correa, who is living in exile in Belgium after being convicted of bribery. Uh, she will face off against a 35-year-old member of Ecuador's National Assembly named Daniel Naboa, who got 24%. He's more of a centrist. He's the son of a rich banana business guy who also has run for president before. Um, 
all of these candidates were incredibly on edge during voting, obviously, because one of their rivals had just gotten assassinated. Uh, Ecuador also said that there were cyber attacks on their elections from a number of countries, but the results were not impacted. Regardless, the two uh, leaders will go head to head and run off in October. The winner will hold office until 2025 because uh, the outgoing president called for early elections. So that's the latest uh, from Ecuador. Yeah. And and, and uh, look, it took a lot of courage for these people to just kind of keep campaigning. Can you imagine? Um, yeah. Uh, and so to me, it is a sign of some resilience of democracy here, even if, you know, the people that killed uh, a candidate kind of made their point too, right? Um, but, but I think you did see most of the political class in Ecuador stand up against this kind of thing. And there was kind of some defiance and resiliency, which is, I think, positive here. Um, it does certainly feel like the left of center candidate um, has the upper hand. We were talking also, Tommy, about the election in Guatemala. Oh, right. Yeah, um, of course. Where you had, uh, like, out of nowhere, you know, the, the, you had the political lead try to kind of strangle, you know, ban candidates. And you had the outsider candidate, the progressive candidate, the anti-corruption candidate, Bernardo Arevalo, come out of nowhere and win this election a real glimmer of hope in Central America, where the politics has been, let's just say, not great between Bukele and El Salvador and Daniel Ortega and Nicaragua. This is worth noting as like a real win for democracy and anti-corruption and progressive values against long odds. And frankly, you're kind of drawing the short straw. (laughs) You kind of walk in that viper's nest of like, corruption and money um, for short term too. Yeah. yeah, But this, this, this is definitely a good outcome. Yeah. So you brought us up. I'm going to bring us back down by talking about the far right in Germany. We often talk about the rise of these far right political parties, especially right wing populists. One such party is the alternative for Germany or AFD party. AFD is, is virulently extreme and right wing anti LGBT. They want to deport migrants. They talk about openly preferring like a Trumpian style of communications. They talk about the great replacement theory all the time. According to the Washington Post, the AFD is now polling at around 21%, making it the second most popular party in Germany. They are riding economic concerns, anger about immigration, uh, and it is creating this sort of political conundrum for the center-right Christian Democratic Party is they have to decide, do we work with these people, right? And try to like siphon off some of their support. You ostracize them. So, you know, it's like a, a classic conundrum that people deal with when managing the far right. So it's it's worrisome to have these far right parties doing well, especially in Germany of all places. And the other part about this that is this different in Germany is the AFD is gaining more support while becoming more radical. They're not moderating to gain support like you saw in, you know, Italy, for example. And so, you know, this isn't like I, I this is not an unfamiliar feeling for us in America where we watched the Republican Party win elections by becoming more radical in 2016. But it is concerning. And by the way, it's connected to all the other things we talked about, like support for Ukraine, climate change, immigration, like all the broader systemic problems. Yeah, never good when uh, the Nazis get like a foothold in Germany. Um, Don't love that. Yeah. I mean, that the, the AFD, you know, has deep roots in kind of neo-Nazi far-right ideology. And They've been lingering around, uh, but they've usually kind of hit five, ten percent ceiling, and so this, this nudging up is it should be seen as a big warning sign. And look, um, you know, we've uh, taken issue with, made fun of, um, 
the and we'll probably do it again with Vivek in a few minutes here. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these critiques of the Ukraine war, but the reality is part of what is happening is you had this massive energy disruption. You've had cost of living crises. You have uh, lots of refugees from Ukraine now in Germany, and and that does present a set of challenges. And just because. You know, that doesn't mean that therefore we should withdraw support for Ukraine and, you know, like, no. but, but sometimes people like don't want to talk about those challenges because they think just talking about those challenges, right. some kind of somehow delegitimizes support for Ukraine. No, I think it's very important to name these issues and to have European leaders like close to public opinion on this stuff. Um, and just, you know, I think Olaf Schultz has done a pretty good job as Chancellor of Germany, but clearly there needs to be constant effort to kind of name the anxieties that people are feeling in Europe. Um, so that you don't have a set of politicians who are like, no, th- we're doing the right thing, nothing to see here. And then the radicals seem like the ones that are telling the truth, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I think like a, a much more kind of honest, close to the ground conversation about politics in all these countries is going to be necessary, or else we could look up in a few years and you get you know, National Front in France and Maloney in Italy, and maybe the AFD is not in charge, but they suddenly- If they've they kind of, in a coalition they, or yeah, something, they, yeah. they've knocked down the door. Yeah, you know, this is something you you really got to nip it's, in the bud. It's worrisome. Yeah. It's worrisome. So you, you mentioned uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. The first Republican debate is happening on Wednesday, August 23rd. We record this the day before, so we don't know what's going to be discussed. But it seems like Ramaswamy is going to come under attack for some recent comments he made about Israel. Here's a clip. I'm a deal maker. OK, I want to negotiate now Abraham Accords 2.0. Get Saudi, Oman, Qatar, Indonesia in there. Get Israel on its own two feet. And I believe in standing by commitments that we've already made. So our commitments have, I think, $38 billion in aid, military support, et cetera, going in through 2028. I want to get Israel to the place where it is negotiated back into the infrastructure of the rest of the Middle East. We should not be worried about holding one nation or one region hostage over one particular question relating to Palestine. Go to Abraham Accords 2.0. That's good for Israel. It's good for the rest of the Middle East. It's good for us, such that come 2028, that additional aid won't be necessary in order to still have the kind of stability that we'd actually have in the Middle East by having Israel more integrated in with its partners. He made these comments on Russell Brand's show on Rumble. Yes, the guy from Get Him to the Greek is doing presidential interviews. So Nikki Haley, former uh, ambassador to the UN under Trump, came out swinging at, at Vivek. She said he is completely wrong to call for ending America's special bond with Israel. Support for Israel is both the morally right and strategically smart thing to do. And if elected president, I will never abandon Israel. In response to Haley, Vivek's spokesperson said, we wish her well on her future in corporate America's boardrooms. Great hit. Um, but then Mark Levin, who's this very uh, popular conservative radio host, also criticized him. Vivek uh, responded more substantively, saying he will accomplish the Abraham Accords 2.0 in his first year, which means Israel will be fully integrated into the region, so they will have all the support it needs. It's it's just like, it's classic Vivek Ramaswamy policy, and then it's all four or five D chess, and he talks about incredibly hard things as if they are simple, but it is a pretty radical departure from the orthodoxy in either party when it comes to aid to Israel. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just I love that guy's verbal tics, which we talked about last week. He's like, it's such self-assurance, you know, which kind of makes it hard to not think like, well, does this guy like know what he's talking about? Um, so you see why he's kind of catching on a little yeah. bit because he, he says things with such like absolute assurance. 
to me, what was interesting about this is a couple of things. First of all, the substance of what he said should actually like not be, basically what he's saying is if Abraham Accords 2.0, as he brands it, is Israel's basically normalized relations with everybody and given nothing to the Palestinians and can kind of crush them, then why do we need to give them $4 billion in military assistance a year? Um, it's not an unreasonable question. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even support the- A lot Ab- of ifs. Yeah, right, like, I don't yeah. even support the Abraham Accords 2.0, but like, if you follow his logic train, like, I, I actually don't know that Nikki Haley- it has her finger on the pulse of the Republican voter on I this don't one think either, she does right? At all, like, no. I think he's he's breaking the, the the wall. Like, we the Democratic Party's had this debate. I think what he's doing is he's signaling that this is probably a debate that's coming to the Republican Party too. You know, and for for some good reasons, substantive reasons, like why are we giving a wealthy country uh, that is a regional military superpower four billion dollars a year in military aid? Um, probably some not good reasons too, like some of that MAGA base has probably, you know, some of them are evangelicals who want the Jews to convert at the rapture. Yeah. Some of them may, you know, they like George Soros dog whistles and, you know, like what Vivek is saying for bad reasons. I think one of the things that was most interesting to me, Tommy, is like the way this was received. The New York Times, so I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm picking on the New York Times or the nature of American politics or or, or who. Pick away. But they... Um, they, they have a paragraph here that said, uh, opponents have attacked Mr. Ramaswamy for his assertions that he would leave Taiwan to the Chinese once the United States has sufficiently expanded its semiconductor industry. He would allow Russia to keep parts of Ukraine in order to entice Vladimir Putin away from his alliance with China. Then he said he would curtail military aid to Israel after stabilizing the Middle East, perhaps the politically riskiest position yet. That's a crazy sentence. <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 I, you know, and yeah. I, maybe this is not a shot at the times. It's more a shot at like how the like, perceptions of foreign policy become received wisdom. It is, it, it, is it more controversial to suggest we should not give $4 billion a year to Israel than it is to say that China can have Taiwan? To let two democracies <laughs> yeah, yeah. be crushed. Or, and Russia can yeah, have Ukraine. Yeah. Like that, there's something wrong with the politics of foreign policy when that is a normal sentence, right? Yeah, uh, I had not uh, read just, that. Yeah, like that I, is really troubling. And, 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 and I know what the Times is reflecting. It's, too, it's but... not just the Times, but it's like, you know, I don't think this is sustainable, this idea that you can't even broach these issues, you know? Um, yeah. I think this is this debate about Aid is coming. The ten-year mem- memorandum of understanding that gu- guides U.S. military to uh, Israel is, is expiring soon, and I'm not sure. I, I think there are going to be people in both parties who are going to be like, we're, "Are we signing up for another forty billion dollars, fifty billion dollars in aid to a country that really doesn't need it?" And and some of them are telling us they don't want it because that's mainly aid that gets channeled through U.S. defense yeah. contractors. So anyway, I hate to say Vivek has a take that is worth consideration. It's a stop clock that is right periodically. But, you know, he's stirring a pot that I think is going to be stirred increasingly. In it is interesting. It, here, here's one other clip of him talking about the United Nations, speaking of pot <laughs> stirring. I think we need to stop funding organizations that are hostile to the sovereignty of the U.S. That includes the WHO. That may very well include the U.N. I am perfectly open to reevaluating the U.S.'s continued involvement in the U.N. itself. If the U.N. Security Council is staffed by the likes of Venezuela and North Korea, it is a joke. And we have to call out that farce for what it is. I've already said I would shut down the CDC. That's on my list of three-letter agencies that I would shut down here in the United States here at home. (laughs) And my general view, this is, I'm only saying half-jokingly here, but if it comes in an acronym, chances are we should be skeptical of it. He wants to, like, 
shut down half of the government. It, it is it, it is far more radical, the things he's saying about like getting rid of the CDC. I think he wants to shut down the FBI. I forget, uh, maybe the EPA. Like, There's all these acronyms, uh, agencies that yeah. he just wants to get rid of. I mean, the, the WHO stuff is insane. Like we, what, we, we benefit from the WHO. Like, do we not want any international effort to prevent pandemics? I don't or, like diseases. Yeah, yeah. Like w- what personally. would happen if there's an Ebola outbreak? You know, who, who do you think we call in the natural system? On the UN point, the UN point is, is weird to me for, I, I get why Vivek, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy. It's kind of like an old school John Bolton but that's type the, comment. That, yeah. That's what's interesting to me about Vivek is like doing this is that, that that's kind of like retro. That's like 20 years ago. Like the UN is really, is, does anybody think the UN is the problem? Like the problem in the UN right now is that Russia and China are paralyzing it. Yeah. So like the reason the Security Council isn't able to solve any problems isn't because it's quote unquote staffed by Venezuelans and North Koreans. I didn't know what the fuck he's talking about there. Um, yeah, they need some woke reason it's a problem or some communist reason that's really the problem when really that's no, Russia and China. Yeah, and, and the Republicans are the dog that caught the car on this one because they've demagogued the UN for so long, but now it's the R- Russians and Chinese who are like, hey, the UN headquartered in New York City with a bunch of rules that were written by the United States is basically, in their view, an extension of the West. And so therefore, we're going to have our own BRICS thing. So Vivek saying he's going to break the UN is kind of like breaking the, the pieces of the international system that we, we fucking built. Yeah, you yeah. Know? These guys want to get rid of all the institutions that benefit US security, like NATO yeah. as well. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's a self-own, like all these things that these people want to do. Totally. He's giving Taiwan to the Chinese. He's giving Ukraine to the Russians. He's blowing up the UN, which yeah. is something the Russians and Chinese want. Like, maybe start to... T- Time to ask questions with this this six month crash course he's been on seems to really benefit yeah, the wrong who, people. Who was your say. teacher? Yeah, sir. Yeah. Well, please fill us in. Tucker Carlson. I yeah, guess. Tucker. Yeah. It probably was Tucker. Um, so Ben, last week uh, an unmanned Russian spacecraft crash landed into the moon. The Luna twenty five probe was Russia's first lunar mission to the moon in nearly fifty years. It was designed to check out the lunar South Pole because scientists think there might be a bunch of ice there, which would be critical in terms of a water supply and oxygen supply for supporting life on the moon in the future. India also launched a lunar mission. It is supposed to land on Wednesday, August 23rd, so the day this comes out. If the mission is a success, it would obviously be a feather in the cap for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and a bit humiliating for the Russians since they launched their probe early because they wanted to beat India to the uh, to the moon, to the lunar south pole. So Ben, I, I'm sure there are like some resistance accounts that are like dunking on this on Twitter and cheering about Russia's failure. And like, I look, I get that, right? I mean, you don't want anything that sort of benefits Putin as a PR win is probably not great right now, but bigger picture and long-term it would be great for all of us to work together on space exploration and not have to rely on assholes like Elon Musk or, uh, you know, not have a plan B if the planet burns. I mean, if I'm Russian, I'm like, all right, we're already like our economy is in shitter because of this stupid fucking war. We're dealing with sanctions. We're spending all this money in Ukraine. And why are we landing something on, on the moon? Like, it just shows the megalomania of Putin. Like, I just think this should be a vulnerability for him. Like, what's the point of doing moon missions? I, and also, like, this kind of weird space race to get to the moon, I'll be a little jingoistic here. Like, we had guys, like, hitting golf balls on the moon when, like, you know, Johnny 60s, Carson was yeah. hosting The Tonight Show. Like, I mean, the, like, or decades before. Like, the, like, let's, I wish we could cooperate more and, like, achieve international aims in space rather than have this kind of weird retro space race. You know? Yeah, it is uh, crazy. What was that great... 
My one of my favorite attacks on Barack Obama ever. One of the dumbest quotes oh, I, I've uh, ever read. How are you? Uh, uh, how are you going to teach our kids to reach for the stars when you're cutting funding for the? Very same things allow them to... <laughs> RNC understand. spokesman Danny Diaz yeah. said, it is ironic that Barack Obama's plan to help our children reach for the stars is financed in part by slashing a program that helps us learn about those very same stars. <laughs> it was a quaint time when uh, politics was about issuing statements that appealed to swing states. Like, uh, and that was like, uh, meant to appeal to yeah, Florida because yeah. Yeah, we were cutting some la- launch pad in Florida. Incredible, yeah. incredible. Uh, last story before we get to the interview. So uh, we need to talk about diplomacy, dining, and dashing, Ben. So here's the backstory. Four Italian tourists went to Albania. They had a nice dinner. They purportedly enjoyed the food. And then they ran out of there without paying the check. They were caught on security video. And the clip blew up on social media. Uh, It became such big news that the prime minister of Albania raised this exact issue with Italian prime minister Giorgia Maloney while she was visiting Albania. Maloney responded by telling the Italian ambassador to Albania to, quote, go and pay the bill for these idiots, end quote. And she sent this guy over to the restaurant and they picked up the 80 euro tab. So Ben, to me, this is a reminder that you might be a bit of a fascist. You might be a fan of a Mussolini, but you can also be pretty good at politics. And That's this is shrewd. That is really good at politics, yeah. I have to say. I mean, it's a dumb thing because like people run on the check everywhere and it doesn't have to be an international incident. But I get that the Albanians feel like you know, that's the Italians looking down on them. So exactly, th- that's you know, there's a reason why she's 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 very good at politics. I think she's, you know, I don't agree with her politics, but I think she's gonna be around for a little while. I do know? too. The, the New York Times had an interesting profile on her recently. It was also featured on the Daily. They talked about some of the ways she seems to have moderated. Yeah, they are kicking out the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative programs. They are uh, seemingly a lot less anti-EU. She's not yanking support out from under the the Ukrainians yet. So it, it, she's turned out to be more complicated, I think, than we thought she, she might she's be. She's like maintains her far right view of immigration. And I think what she's calculated is that's the bread and butter for my base. Yeah. And these other areas I can give in ways that help me because like, it's, you know, like it's better for her to not be ostracized. From, she got invited to Washington. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Okay, that is it for us for the news. Uh, When we take a quick break and then we're going to come back, you'll hear my interview with President Biden's top Asia hand, Kirk Campbell, about the recent summit at Camp David. So stick around for that. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Superdeck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. 
no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. I am so excited to welcome to the show my friend and President Biden's coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs, Kurt Campbell. Kurt, it's great to see you. Tommy, it's great to see you as well. I wish I was there with you in person. I wish you were here too. But you've been a busy man. Uh, Last week, President Biden hosted the presidents of Japan and South Korea at Camp David for this historic summit. Historic because you guys hashed out a new defense agreement and because there has been some longstanding animosity between Japan and South Korea. Can you tell us a bit about how this came together uh, and what you guys accomplished? Sure. Thank you. And Tommy, it's a great way to begin. So first of all, our probably our two closest allies in Asia, or certainly in Northeast Asia, Japan and South Korea, each ally like near, nearly 80 years old. Uh, and we're very close and we have a security commitment to both of them. Um, the, the challenge has been during the Second World War and before, obviously, Japan occupied South Korea, uh, a brutal colonial experience and also uh, tough fighting during the Second World War. I think it'd be fair to say that neither country really fully recovered from that experience. And so for decades, there have been start and stop efforts to try to rebuild trust and confidence. Each time that you might see a little bit of progress, then you'd see backtracking. So basically, when President Biden came to office, he had tried working on this himself when he was vice president. Tom, and you recall when you were working with President Biden, and I remember him leaving the room singing, man, those guys don't like each other. And mm-hmm. so yeah. when he first came to power here as president, he instructed us to basically work behind the scenes, do what's possible to try to bring these two really treasured allies more closely together. So we had a series of interactions, mostly private, some trilateral kind of behind the scenes, shuttling, trying new ideas, new concepts. But it wasn't until we had new leadership in both Japan and South Korea. South Korea in particular, President Yoon elected last year, has taken heroic, courageous steps, basically to underscore his commitment and Korea's commitment to mending fences and moving forward with Japan. And Japan, under Prime Minister Kishida, I think carefully has responded. So what we saw last week was an effort to take this fledgling bipartisan sort of agreement between these two countries into a trilateral context. So we rolled out all these things that our three countries will do together in an attempt to lock in that cooperation and to place the United States at the center uh, of this engagement. Now, Tommy, you were at uh, Cape David many times. This was only my second time there. Terribly exciting, you know, really wonderful to see Uh, my Japanese and South Korean friends there with the president. I think everyone felt that it was uh, tremendously significant. And, you know, the word historic is thrown around a lot, but I think it'd be fair to say this was historic. Yeah, I I think you you emphasized something there, which is this uh, meeting and these tough conversations are very difficult politics for both of these leaders back home. So it's a courageous political decision. Uh, They allowed my ass at Camp Taven one time. It was in 2012. (laughs) And they said, please don't come back. This was uh, the G8, now the G7 
Uh, my memories of it are watching soccer with a bunch of the leaders of the Champions League final. And then uh, Dmitry Medvedev was there. It was his last hurrah on the world stage until he and his entourage were pushed out by Vladimir Putin. So I remember uh, he and his crew got shit-faced until two in the morning. And then I think they tried to order 27 hamburgers from the Navy mess. So do you guys get into any uh, any creative diplomacy or get in any trouble? We, I mean, most of what we're involved with in staff is stealing as much shit as possible. And so <laughs> I didn't have as much time to drink because I was, I, I came home and my wife said, like, Kurt, you've got 700 notepads. What it like, I'll be able to write a note every day for the rest of my life. So we have shirts, notepads, everything possible. We bought lots of stuff, stuff that I will never wear. None of my kids will wear, but it just felt so exciting to be there. We had to have things that we would take. Yeah, you got to take the tchotchkes. Yeah. Okay, allow, allow me to pretend to be a hard-ass journalist. Sure, for a second. okay, so, go ahead. So I imagine, you know, China's military buildup was probably a big, you know, yeah. part of the conversation. If you and I were sitting in Beijing, we might say, look at these goddamn Americans. They are giving nuclear subs to the Australians. They're shipping weapons to Taiwan. They're hosting this summit. They're trying to contain us, right? They're driving this arms race and they're doing it all to, to check us. What's your response to that? Well, look, you know, we're obviously, Tommy, in an action and reaction cycle. I would simply say you forgot to mention the quad, other things that we're doing in the Philippines. So you're right. They have a, a very established narrative of all the things that we are purportedly doing to keep them down. I will simply say that probably no country has done more to support China's rise help with investment and capacity and uh, know-how than the United States. And almost every country in the Indo-Pacific wants a predictable, stable relationship between their country and China. So I just begin with that as a proposition. I think what we've seen over the course progressively of the last 10 years is a leader in Xi Jinping that is increasingly ambitious prepared to take risks, believes that the United States is in just profound decline and that it's China's time to basically strike uh, on the international scene. And I think our response would be not so fast and that the United States has worked with allies and partners to, Tommy, essentially construct what we might describe as an operating system in the Indo-Pacific. And that operating system has yielded unprecedented prosperity. We've lifted billions of people out of poverty. We've kept peace and stability. And this fabric of the maintenance of peace and stability, peaceful resolution of disputes, um, you know, uh, maritime security, there are many elements that go into this. But almost every state that we've engaged believes that there are aspects of this operating system that are essential. And what China's trying to do as an arriving state, sorry to go international relations on you. I like it. Trying, I like it too. Is trying to revise that system in ways that frankly are not in the interests of these countries. So I think what we are seeing is a response to China. I do not believe that this is a noose around China's neck. None of these countries want to contain China. They want to have good relations with China, but they are worried about the direction that China's policy has taken over the last several years. And they look to the United States to be stable, firm, clear, and tough. 
Yeah. Xi Jinping is going to build an island off the coast of Delaware and blame it on you, pal. <laughs> um, so in their one and only Oval Office meeting after Trump won the election, President Obama reportedly warned him that the threat from North Korea was urgent, that their nuclear weapons program was something yeah. he needed to get on top of. Of course, we're sitting here six years later. Yeah. North Korea's got more nukes. They got better missiles. I believe they're able to launch them from subs now, despite all of Trump's, you know, let's call it creative uh, efforts at diplomacy. Do you think it's time to admit that we are not going to put the toothpaste back in the tube here and, and that the North Korea will never give up its nukes? So um, so I'm still about trying to get that toothpaste back in the tube. It's a thankless task. But I will say since President Biden has come to office, his determination has been to do whatever possible to reach out without condition to make clear that we want to resume a dialogue and work constructively with North Korea. Look, Tommy, I will tell you this, that, you know, when COVID struck North Korea, we were terribly worried that this would lead to, you know, enormous human consequences. We offered vaccines, we offered support behind the scenes, very carefully, not done for publicity or propaganda purposes, but to hopefully signal our genuine desire to support and help the people of North Korea. Essentially, since President Trump stormed out of Hanoi uh, now seven years ago, we've really had no engagement with North Korea, but we are not alone. Uh, Japan, South Korea, other countries have also tried. They are simply, uh, I think, in the current context, working closely with China in a few things, practicing some military tests, and essentially unhappy with the status quo in Northeast Asia. We're gonna continue to engage our response to North Korean provocations is what you saw in Camp David last week. Solidarity, a sense of a common purpose between our allies and partners in Northeast Asia. I know you got to go soon, so let's try one last question. Uh, I assume you have a, you know, you're probably going to go to a meeting where you try to deal with the North Korean nuclear program or something. Mm -hmm. uh, ben and I noticed that Joe Biden at a fundraiser likes to to talk about China. He recently called the Chinese economy a uh, ticking time bomb in many cases. He said they've got some problems. That's not good because when bad folks have problems, they do bad things. Ben and I kind of wondered if this was maybe, I don't know, an intelligence assessment. And there was a sense that like, Xi Jinping might, you know, see this massive youth unemployment. They might see this looming economic crisis with this kind of ghost real estate bubble that's been built up and think, I don't know, one way to distract from that is to make a move on Taiwan. Is that something folks should be concerned about? So, look, I, I think the truth is, is that we're tr still trying to understand, Tommy, what's happening in the Chinese economy. You pointed to a couple of things that were uh, tracking closely, youth unemployment, the property bubble, some issues associated with debt, not only at the uh, the national level, but at local levels as well. The Chinese economy has slowed down substantially. The government has taken steps that in many respects, we believe undermine innovation. They've made it illegal to talk about just data in the economy as a national security threat. So there are many things that are going on in China that are impeding growth, that are causing uh, the wheels, uh, if not to come off, certainly to slow down substantially with respect to Chinese economic performance. The question is always in that environment, if you are facing domestic headwinds and challenges, does that cause you to be 
uh, less ambitious internationally to mm -hmm. edge your bets, to be more careful? Or does it cause you to think about, look, we've got to distract attention and take steps that would lead to more provocative actions. And I don't think we really know the answer now. And the truth is you can see, you know, one uh, strategy followed for a while and then suddenly uh, the other. And so I, I think it requires the United States to be deeply focused, to remain vigilant, to work with China where we can, which we're determined to do and work closely. As we uh, speak, Tommy, it was just announced that our very able Commerce Secretary Ramundo will be in China next week. We are keeping those lines of communication open. Um, uh, in truth, I think no one would have expected that the U.S. economy post-COVID would be booming and China would be um, uh, uh, facing challenges. But it is a lesson that those who underestimate the United States do so at their own peril. Well, Kurt, I want to tell you that one, Ben and I pledge that if we see one of those spy balloons over Los Angeles, we'll shoot it down ourselves. And two, you know, congratulations on the summit. I I can only imagine how many hours you guys spent in the situation room preparing for this thing. It must have been an ungodly amount of work. So it was a lot. It was a lot of work, but blowing up those balloons also your 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 arm muscles get really tired. <laughs> Awesome. Well, listen, thanks again. And uh, it was great having you on. Let's do it again soon. Great. Say hello to everyone for me. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Kurt for joining the show. Uh, don't dine and dash, people. It's just a dick move. You know, okay, I, uh, I did this once. Uh, How old were you? There was, I was like 17. Uh -huh. There was like an all-night diner that you could go to like drunk at 2 in the morning and get like eggs. Where, you know? where are we? We're on the Upper West Side. Okay. And I, I had like a couple of meet friends who I think had done this once before. And, mm -hmm. like, and I, I, I was uncomfortable with it, but they're like, we, like, we got to do it. Uh, you know, it was really stupid because we go to that place all the time. So like, I uh, think that yeah, the you. idea is like we were going to end up paying these people anyway at some point. Let's just say like we all run out. The guy who chases us decides to follow me. Oh, no. Um, I was fast. I, th like, I, I thought they'd go after the slower guys, but I think he wanted to go after the faster guy. Oh, no. And he like kicked my ass. Oh, like, no, he, really? He drop kicked me. Like he <laughs> fucking drop kicked me. Which so literally um, kicked you in the ass. Literally kicked me in the ass. Okay. I was like, I'm sorry. It wasn't my idea. Here's money. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> and you know what? Good. Good, uh, good on that Lesson guy. Lesson learned. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I like my brief career in, you know, petty whatever. Petty theft. Uh, you know, the, the, the $5 I owed for this eggs and hash browns I paid and, and I deserved it. So, uh, like, good, good on that guy for kicking my ass, literally. I'm trying to think if I ever dined in Dash. I don't think I ever did. I have a really well-developed sense of guilt, I, I, uh, and I'm not that fast. I was pained with guilt, like, just, I, I remember feeling guilty before this even happened. So, I was, like, secretly, I think, felt like I got what I deserved when this guy was, like, literally drop-kicking me. Have you ever been to the grocery store and they sell, like, lemon-looking uh, plastic things that squeeze out lemon juice? Yes, of course. I remember for some reason, I was like six or seven, and I went to the grocery store with my mom. I stole one of those. We got home. And she was like, where the hell did you get that? And I was like, I stole it. She threw me right back in the car, and we returned it. So I think that was an I, early I, terrifying lesson. I had to do that once with my daughter, because she, when she was like two, she would ride in the cart, and she just... I guess had grabbed a lime and was just like holding it. And, and I get out in the parking lot. I'm like, what? Wait, I don't think we paid for that lime, you know? Like, yeah, we got to uh, teach so the I rule. Returned, I did return it. Uh, if you but, eat it in the store, it's okay. Yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a reminder, I guess, 
you know, produce is easy to swipe if you're two, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And I think we were turning, the person was like, I don't give a shit. I don't own Roach yeah. Brothers. What are yeah. we doing? Although at the Air One in Venice, that lime probably costs like five bucks. So. 400. <laughs> so, so I returned it. I returned it to people. God help. If you try to go to an Air One in this city and you make a smoothie with a couple different parts to it, you're paying $200 yeah. Yeah. minimum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough about LA problems. Uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. Thanks to Saul Rubin and Rebecca Rottenberg for production support. Our intern is Naomi Bierenbaum. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.